But yes, I still do have experiences. Just a few weeks ago, my brother came to me. Yeah. He showed me the day of his death from the, a different perspective. I'd always viewed it as an 11-year-old boy. Right. And I'd, I'd experienced the anguish of my parents, um, but I didn't understand it. And just a few weeks ago, my brother came to me and he showed me the day of his death from the perspective of a parent, because now I have five children. And for all these decades, I'd thought my biggest psychic wound was the death of my brother and my separation from him. And it, that was significant, that was profound. But I now realize too that I think even my greater wound was seeing the helpless suffering of my parents and not being able to do anything to relieve it. Right. And he spoke to me and he said, go tell our parents not to be sad anymore. Because my parents are still alive. Yeah. And he said, tell them to be happy when they talk about me. I don't want them to be sad anymore. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. So great to be with you again. I've got another delicious man to introduce you to today, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll. Welcome to the show, Jeff. So good to be with you. It's nice <laughs> to be with you. Now, uh, one of my most favorite people in the world, Kristen, told me about you. She met you at a meeting in Salt Lake City and she said, oh, you've got to see this guy. He's amazing, amazing. So I stalked you online as I do and uh, your story is amazing. And I think as yet not too spread, not too many people have heard your story on podcast shows. Have How many podcast shows have you done so far? Oh, I've done a few small podcasts, nothing really big, a few uh, radio appearances. Uh, but uh, like you say, a lot of people have not heard my story yet. Not yet, but we're going to go into it. Let me just read your delicious bio here. Okay, I'm just going to read this from your website because I thought this was really beautiful. And you say, I exist to help souls heal. Every experience enables me to help others. For 25 years, I've helped people heal their bodies. Now I help them heal their souls. Your answers are within. I'll help you find them. I help people find their gifts so they can find their own answers. I bring people to that aha moment. I just thought that was beautiful. I had to read that out from your website. Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll experienced many shared death phenomena and other spiritual encounters during his 25 years as an emergency physician in a level one trauma center. He welcomed souls arriving into the sphere of existence and bid farewell to others who were leaving. Sometimes he encountered those who hovered between worlds, having traversed the tenuous terrain near the borders of mortality. He now helps others understand the lessons learned in their near to the veil experiences. Many of the lessons he learned from his spiritual experiences are incorporated in his six children's books and a novel, Who Buried Achilles? 
also in his latest award-winning novel called Not Yet, where Jeff grabs highlights from his 25 years in the emergency department and walks readers through a series of near-death experiences that open a window into the spiritual world. Dr. Jeff obtained his MD at the University of Utah School of Medicine and completed his residency in Salt Lake City, Utah. He is board certified in internal medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. He has published work in theology, ancient scripture, history, medical science, and medical administration. Jeff, you've been a busy guy. In addition to writing, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll enjoys painting, sculpting, and cycling. He is a talented public speaker and loves teaching both small groups and large audiences. He and his wife, Sheila, have been married for 31 years. They have five children and three grandchildren. Reach out to Dr. O'Driscoll for speaking engagements and find his books and art at jeffodriscoll.com. Beautiful. So we're going to get into some of your experiences. We're just having a chat before about um, opening up to what you experienced as a doctor. Did you tell too many people when you were a physician what was happening to you? I didn't speak a lot about it when I was uh, actively practicing. Occasionally I'd talk with a physician about it if it was somebody I trusted. And there was a couple of nurses who were quite sensitive to spiritual things. And sometimes we'd visit about that as well. And um, just one clarification I might offer too, uh, you, you used the, the word novel when you were describing the book, not yet, but uh, it's not fictional. It's, uh, those are my real experiences that I had sometimes with spirits that were outside of their bodies. Uh, and I experienced those things in the emergency department. I know. It's amazing. Well, let's go back to the beginning. How did it all begin for you? What, what happened? Well, I I had a hard time answering that question for a long time because I never gave it much thought. I just thought I was doing the same thing that everybody else was doing and that everybody else was having the same experiences. Wow. It was only when I started to share some of my experiences that people would ask me about my gift, which I had never called a gift, never thought of as a gift. And they asked me, how did it start? When did it start? And so that kind of started me thinking and and going backward in my life, I think it started when I was 11, when my brother was killed in a farm accident. He tipped a tractor over. And I think that was something that opened a spiritual window for me. Okay. How old was your brother when he dropped the body? He was 15. He was a few years older than me. Consequently, I worshipped him. Uh, I, I trusted everything he said and did. And uh, he was my role model. And so it, it hit me hard when he was gone. And... Uh, through my teenage years, I'd have spiritual experiences where I'd hear a voice speaking to me. On one occasion, I was driving a car much too fast, and a voice told me I needed to slow down. Huh. I went around the corner, and I encountered a pair of headlights that belonged to a Cadillac, and this was before people wore seatbelts much. I, nobody was injured in the accident despite all the damage, but I think I might have been killed if I hadn't listened to that voice that night. And only in retrospect did I side I thought it was probably my brother speaking to me oh, okay so you weren't too present to it being him you just heard it as a voice you weren't you didn't identify it at the time sometimes he's identified himself as my brother sometimes nice. he's identified himself by name his name's Stan but on that occasion I just heard a voice 
And it was only in retrospect, thinking about it, I was a pretty rebellious teenager. I, I wouldn't have listened to my parents. I wouldn't have listened to law enforcement. I don't think I'd have listened to God if he'd have come and sat in the car with me and told me to slow down. But the voice wrapped itself around my heart, and I, I felt it. I experienced it. In retrospect, I think it was my brother, because that's who I would have listened to. Right. Oh, it's so interesting how spirit gets our attention. So many people say that, Jeff, you know, like, um, I don't think I would have listened to it because I didn't listen to anyone then. Uh, even, even as an adult, uh, one of my you know, friends who've been on the show quite a few times, Garnet Schulhauser was a corporate lawyer. He, uh, his spirit guide appeared to him as a homeless man in the street. Filthy, dirty, unwashed, unkept homeless man, which I find hilarious because he was a spiritual guide. And I yeah. said, why did, why did he appear to you physically like that? And he said, because it was a voice in my head, I would have ignored it. <laughs> well... Uh, I don't know uh, whether you read this in my book, but I described I an experience in my book where I actually was taking care of a homeless man. And uh, I actually sat at the foot of the gurney and washed his feet. And in the process of doing so, I saw his divine nature. Mm -hmm. I saw the divinity in this man. It was a humbling and profound and spiritual experience. I did read that in the book and it reminded me of Garnet and, uh, uh, I just, it's just the lesson of the homeless man. It's really a lesson in judgment. Look, the book, I've, I've read most of the book and um, yes, judgment, judgment, our judgment, who we are as human beings who love to judge people as good, better, um, better, you know, yeah. it really addresses and that. Mm -hmm. we, we love to judge people and we love to minimize our own divinity and uh, our own spiritual experiences. When I was 19, uh, having heard the voice through my rodeo years when I used to ride bulls and, and playing football and drinking more alcohol than I should have and doing other things. When I was 19, using the limited vocabulary available to me at the time, I approached a friend who was a few years older and I asked her, I said, I didn't give her any context at all for my question. I asked, does God ever speak to you in sentences? And she just looked at me and she had this really stern knowing look and she kind of wagged her finger at me like this. And she said, don't ever doubt that. And it was good advice. It's great advice. You know, in the book Conversation with God, Neil Donald Walsh put them out years ago where they went viral across the world and all the people vilifying him saying, what makes you so special that God speaks to you? And God clearly says in the book, I speak to everyone. It's not who I speak to. It's who's listening. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to fix your mic. All righty. Well, let's get into some of your experiences because they're just amazing. They're just absolutely amazing. Uh, what was one of the first experiences that happened to you as a psychic medium, I suppose we'd call yourself? Um, you know, I like to call these things abilities. I don't see them as gifts because I think if they're gifts, we're all gifted. In fact, I think it's the only sense through which we experience the world before our other senses kick in as children, as babies. As you know, like a baby needs to learn to hear and see and smell and taste. Watch babies taste for the first time. That's hilarious. You know, yes, all, <laughs> all the I, I have experience with that because being a physician, I know that there's this sucking reflex that is an infant cannot overcome. And so if you put a little drop of lemon juice on their binky and stick it in their mouth uh, they they just crunch crunch their face all up but they can't stop sucking on it so it, sometimes it's not good to be the child of a doctor 
<laughs> I bet. <laughs> so what was one of the first things that happened to you as a psychic medium in, a, in, a, in an emergency room? Well, I've, that's an interesting term. I've never thought of myself as a medium. Uh, uh, one of my experiences that I've shared uh, occasionally had to do with coming to work and starting my shift. And as I walked into the department, I became aware of a spiritual presence. For me, it starts out as this vibration, uh, this, this feeling in my core, and it spreads outward. It ripples out to the tips of my extremities. And uh, I know that it's different for everyone, but for me, that heralds a, a spiritual presence. And uh, mm -hmm. this woman asked me for help silently, psychically. She asked me for help. I hadn't even checked in to start my shift yet. I wasn't her doctor. I wasn't involved in her medical care at all. But I walked around the corner and a team of uh, healthcare providers uh, was trying to resuscitate this woman who was unconscious. And uh, right. um, I, I was not providing her any medical care. I want to make that explicitly clear. Um, but she silently reached out to me from her unconscious state and asked me if she could leave. And I just inconspicuously walked over to the edge of the gurney and I rested my hand on her leg and touched her leg while everybody else continued to do their jobs. And uh, I said to her silently that I thought if she felt it was okay to go, if she thought the timing was right, then it was probably okay for her. And as I said that, she rose up out of her body and stood in the air and looked about half the age of the body that she'd just exited. And she brought with her a profound sense of peace that settled over me and took me to a glorious place as everyone else continued their medical tasks yeah. uh, uninterrupted. And then she thanked me for, the, for what I'd done which was essentially nothing, and then left. <sighs> and it taught me a profound lesson that if we want to have spiritual experiences, it's important to be willing to listen and to act. Yeah. I don't know to this day what, if anything, I did to help her, but I was willing to try, and she was so profoundly grateful. Well, she was just asking permission. I mean... You said that she asked for help. She wanted to leave. So I guess. Yes, but I don't understand why she was asking me or why she thought my uh, participation in the decision was in any way important to her. I wasn't providing her medical care. I didn't, I'd never met her before or since. I think maybe she just needed some reassurance from a fellow traveler that, yes, it's okay to go. Well, yeah, a few reasons why she was. One, you're embodied. And two, she was speaking to you psychically uh, or telepathically or her soul. One soul was speaking to another soul um, or, you know, consciousness, whereas all the other people were so busy. You know, when you're busy in the doing, especially if you're trying to save people's lives, you're not really tapped into that part of the brain. Maybe in fact, that's true. When, when I'm actively taking care of a patient, if, I'm, if I was trying to resuscitate that patient and I was giving orders and doing procedures, uh, I would not likely have felt any spiritual presence right. because I've had many times when I was actively uh, occupied in the, in the tasks of my job where I didn't feel a spiritual presence at all. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Because you're actively in that doing mode, even if you did feel that tingling, 
you probably would have ignored it because you've got things to do, right? It's like, I've got to do right. this because you're, th you're in the thinking mind. And uh, you can't yeah. let that spiritual stuff interfere with what you're trained to do. <laughs> I know, right? right? And, and, when you're, exactly. and when you're doing what you're trained to do, you often uh, exclude the spiritual. Most of my spiritual experiences are when I walk into a room when some other physician has the role of taking care of that patient and I can be completely objective and independent. And that's when I had a lot of my, my experiences. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, your book goes into it, the experiences, but I want to go through a few more of the experiences because they're just beautiful and heartwarming. And I know people watching this and listening to this will love them. Uh, the book is, um, you know, I see someone as Jeff, as, as Jeff as someone that uh, could speak to all levels of intellect. Uh, it's very religious. You're quoting from the Bible. So there's a lot of religious stuff in there, but you're a scientist and a doctor. So you could speak to that level. So you can speak to religious people, new age people, psychic people, mediums, empaths, you know, you could speak to all of them. You seem to put it all in this one book. Well, religion is fascinating to me. I don't review, personally, I don't view any of these experiences as religious experiences. I view them as right. spiritual experiences. Yeah. And I tried to actually go out of my way to not make this a religious book. It does have some uh, ancient scripture and theology incorporated in it because uh, that's the context in which we experience many of these things. Um, for example, I, I taught myself Hebrew so I could study the Torah in Hebrew. And uh, I tried some Greek for the New Testament, but I didn't get very far. I didn't even make an attempt at Arabic. I just studied the, the Quran in English, although the purists would take issue with that. And, and the Bhagavad Gita of the Hindus and some of the Native American traditions are, are intriguing to me. And what is, what's really engaging to me is not what makes us different, but what makes us alike. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's what I tend to focus on. And when I quote scripture, it's generally the scripture or the person to whom I'm speaking to help them put their experience in their own religious context, not in mine. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, you're in uh, Utah, right? At Salt Lake City, you're in the Bible Belt there. Isn't that the Bible Belt of America? Well, it's close. Uh, right. The Bible Belt is a little bit more southern and eastern from here, but there's oh. plenty of uh, people that uh, like the Bible in Utah as well. <laughs> okay. What? And I like the Bible. And you and like the Bible. It's a great book. I try not to be too rigid or dogmatic, but uh, there's well, a lot of wisdom there. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting because I think that coming from your perspective, you're a mind and, and an, a man who's experienced life, so you can interpret the Bible in a way that makes a lot of sense, more sense than a way a lot of people have interpreted the Bible, um, probably because of your experiences. You're not trying to control people or get people to sign up to your club or specific religion or whatever. So the interpretation comes from a more pure heart. There was another beautiful metaphysician and artist. She was also an artist. You're an artist. Back in the uh, beginning of the last century, uh, Florence Chauvel Shin, who wrote a lot of, quoted a lot of the Bible and interpreted it through her own ex psychic experiences too. So it was beautiful to read how she interpreted it. Yeah, I try to, in, in the book, I try to share my experiences and I make it explicitly clear, you don't have to believe me. You're no, under no obligation to believe what I'm saying, and I'm under no obligation to defend it. I'm just sharing my experience, and uh, 
hopefully you'll find it edifying. So let's talk about Janet, the nurse that you talked to. Tell us that story. Um, give me a little bit more because I changed the names of the, of the people, most of them. Unless they requested me to use their real name, I changed the names. So I'm trying to remember which one was named Janet. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about the, the experience, then I can I've, answer your question. I've just written down Janet, <laughs> the nurse, someone you talked to and saw in spirit. I think, was she in spirit? I can't remember if she was in spirit or... I've just jotted down a couple of notes, so I don't remember her story. I thought you'd tell it to me. <laughs> well, uh, one of the nurses, I think in the book, I call this, I call this nurse Rachel. She uh, had wonderful spiritual experiences. Some of them were so profound, they made me weep when she told them to me. And she was the one that kind of pried me out of my shell a little bit and right. got me to talk about some of mine just with her. And so one day we're working in the emergency department together and uh, she comes and tugs on my arm and she says you have to come down to the trauma room I said why what's what's the deal and she said oh he, she's there I said who's there and she goes his wife and what she was talking about was they had radioed in that this man was being flown in from central Utah after a car crash that killed his wife and his 14 month old son and he was being flown to our facility so I went down to the trauma room with her and there was a team of doctors taking care of her taking care of him he, I had no responsibility for his care, but as I walked in, his deceased wife was standing in the air above the gurney watching his care, and she communicated with me and expressed her for her gratitude for the care he was receiving, and I wouldn't have had that experience if Rachel hadn't have come and tugged on my arm and said, you have to come, and she saw it too. That was one of the remarkable things about it was she saw it as well. I know I've met so many nurses that do this. I had once, you know, I was teaching healing years ago. We had a nurse that came and I was teaching them to talk to angels and, you know, use their help because I think that life's pretty stressful in hospitals for nurses and doctors alike, probably more so for nurses. They get, they're doing a lot of stuff. And um, so she was praying to the angels, talking to the angels. It was an old woman dying in her bed. And she just asked the angels to comfort her and comfort her as she trans transitioned. She was on night watch. And then in the morning, she was just doing the rounds before she left in the morning. And the little lady, the little old lady in the bed called her over and she said, thank you for what you did to me last night. Thank you for sending the angels. Oh, my God. And then wow. she transitioned soon after that. And so I've heard so many stories like that from nurses. That, that yeah, Nurses they, are very in tune. Nurses are often very connected. Are. I have a great respect and admiration and love for many of the nurses I worked with for that reason. Oh, more, more stories. What other stories do you remember from your time in the emergency room with spirit? Uh, one interesting story. I remember I came to work and uh, I walked into the room and another physician was trying to resuscitate this woman who had drowned in a hotel pool. And I sensed her presence. And she was just starting to catch her bearings. She was just starting to get a feel of what it felt like to be outside of her body. And I was just kind of connecting with her a little bit. And then all of a sudden she was gone. And I, I remember thinking, where'd she go? What happened? And then I looked up at the monitor and they'd restored her heartbeat. She oh. wasn't gone at all. She was just back in her body. Okay. She was behind that veil and I was no longer able to sense her spiritual presence because she, she'd been resuscitated. 
Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah, you speak beautifully in the book about that veil, actually. There's something in the book that you wrote, and I don't think I wrote it down, about having physical parents and divine parents. Do you want to quote oh, yeah. that? Do you want to yes. talk about that? I, I talk with people on a regular basis, and I try to help them appreciate their divine nature. And one of the ways I do that is I ask them when they became mortal. And people are very comfortable with the idea of becoming mortal at the time of mortal birth. And you don't have to do something miraculous to be mortal. You don't have to grow to adulthood. You don't have to be famous. You're, you're mortal by virtue of your mortal birth. And then I ask them, when did you become divine? And for me, the answer is you became divine when you were born of divine parents, of, of godly beings. And we're, we're divine. We don't have to grow up to be divine. We don't have to do some miraculous thing to finally realize our divinity. All we have to do is own who we are. And in a sense, in a way, when we deny that, we're, it's almost as if we're slapping our divine parent in the face and denying who we are. And, and, and our, our parentage, our, our holy divine parentage, you're shaking their head and saying, but I gave it to you as a gift. You are divine. And we're saying, no, 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 I, I, I hope to be that someday. And, 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 and they're saying, no, 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 you already are. Yes, exactly. I know everyone's trying to be enlightened or be divine or be better. But we already are. It's like, yeah, we are. Like, yes, whereas we are. I think Wayne Dyer was classically stated as, I don't know if he said it first, but people remember him saying it, you know, where spiritual beings having physical experiences, not the other way around, physical beings having spiritual experiences. Yeah. Yes, so, I, I very much embrace that notion. Um, I personally believe that we existed before we came to earth, that we were spiritual beings on an eternal journey and that we have this short experience in mortality to learn, to grow, to experience. And we resume a spiritual journey after death and it, it's a continuum. Uh, uh, and I don't think it comes to an end. I think it's, uh, we're in a temporary spot where we don't remember things as well as we used to, because we had to forget so that we could learn while we're here. I know it's the forgetfulness stuff that really is um, that really is uh, the challenge. It's the challenge, isn't it? It's like forgetting and then remembering. Uh, so many people have had NDEs. Some people come back with amazing uh, memory of what they experience, and some people come back with no memory. It's right. it's I, the last person I spoke to on the show, Dr. Lawrence Brock. He had an NDE like in the seventies uh, as a young twenty-two-year-old. His car wrapped around a tree. But he really doesn't remember much of what happened, but his whole life has unfolded as a consequence of, of it. So he's been guided every step of the way. He's now a healer, an energy healer, has been for 35 years. But he, he knows that something happened. He didn't know what, but he had to sort of uncover his life, like 35 years of experiences. So I don't know, it was even more challenging when you don't remember in a way. than Yes. Um, uh, and a lot of my friends I've spoken to about their experiences, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Mary Neal, who is a spine surgeon, former head of spine surgery at University of Southern California. She had her near-death experience after 30 minutes underwater on a kayaking trip in Southern Chile. Oh, right. Yeah, I've seen her and, talk. And, and, and my friend Eben Alexander, he's a Harvard-trained neurosurgeon who had his... Uh, 
near-death experience when he had a rare bacterial meningitis and was in a coma for a week. And, and after he recovered enough to study his own medical records, he concluded that his brain was far too sick to have constructed what he experienced while out of the body. And I, just last uh, two weeks ago, I spent a few hours with uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, who uh, coined the term near-death experience. And we had a wonderful long chat about what people experience and why and how and this whole notion of consciousness. And, and uh, Raymond Moody, who's been very objective through the decades, has finally come to the point where he's concluded, yes, there is a life after this uh, mortal experience. And he's, he's ready to acknowledge that now. Oh, that makes me laugh. I'm sorry. It's like 35 years of listening to people talk about their near-death experiences and he's just ready to acknowledge it now. Well, he, he, before he was an objective scientist <laughs> and, and now he's uh, come to the point where he says he no longer can deny it. And uh, so we had a very wonderful conversation. That would have been great to get on camera. Anyway, another time, I suspect. Were you, were you online? Were you doing it online or just personal? No, no, I was in person. I went to yeah. his home. Yeah. And uh, the whole time I was kind of thinking, I wish I had put the record button on my yeah. phone, but I didn't want to inhibit it. It was so candid. It was so uh, relaxed and so pleasant. And we just sat and chatted for about three oh, hours. Beautiful. Well, now the book goes into your story with Jeff Olson, who um, for people that love their near-death experiences, they, I'm sure you've come across Jeff Olson's experience, which is just amazing. I saw Jeff Olson on YouTube talking at some irons or some conference, and he spoke so eloquently, so beautifully about his experience. I remember thinking, if I had him on the show, I, you know, I couldn't do better than what he's doing. Like it's a few people I've seen that have spoken about their near-death experience that I haven't had on the show because I really don't think they could do better than what they've already done, you know, without interruption. They just, they just share their experience. And, and obviously he kept you a secret for a long time too because he spoke about the doctor that helped him, but you were yes. kind of like a secret, weren't you, until you came out yes, of your... That, that, that doctor was me. <laughs> and that experience I shared a few minutes ago where Rachel drug me down to the trauma room and I saw the patient unconscious on the gurney and his wife standing in the air, that was Jeff Olson. Yeah. That was the day we met. We didn't speak that day because he was too badly injured to speak. We didn't speak in, for, until about a month later, but that was Jeff Olson. And we've been dear friends uh, for over 20 years. And he invited me to speak with him over the years when he shared, and I have persistently declined, and he respected my privacy and never used my name. But yeah, that infamous doctor he talks about, that was me. <laughs> yeah, so his experience was that he was in a car accident and his wife and son were killed. One son was stayed alive and his wife and his baby, wasn't it? His baby son was killed and he lost a leg. He was horrifically injured. And uh, whew, it's kind of hard to get through his story because it's so heart-wrenching. And you were there to witness it all. Do you want to go into a little bit more of your experience with Jeff? Well, um, uh, I had the experience I described with him and his wife in the trauma room. And then he went off to the operating room and uh, I went back out into the rest of into the department and finished my shift and went home and never expected to see him again. I... Uh, keep a daily journal, but sometimes I'm pretty cryptic. And uh, I, I put it like a half a sentence in my journal about, it was an interesting experience, I, th I, I think I said. I, 
And uh, I never thought of it again for another month until the same nurse, Rachel, came started tugging on my arm again. And I was kind of trying to flick her away because sometimes I don't like it when she tugs on my arm because sometimes she wants to take me places where I don't want to go. And she wanted to take me to Jeff's hospital room. She said, we got to go tell him. And I said, no, no, we don't. And she said, yes, we really do. And I wasn't in the habit of sharing my spiritual experiences with perfect strangers. And I didn't know he'd had a near-death experience. I didn't know how he'd received my experience. Right. But we went and uh, Rachel and Jeff shared and I kind of stood in the corner and listened. And interestingly enough, although I was nodding politely and acknowledging that I'd had this experience, what was really happening in my mind was spirit was speaking to me and telling me, you're here today to connect with him for the next 20 years. You will be friends and you will share important things with him. And I got all of that while they were talking. And uh, uh, about uh, two months later, I met with him for the first time and had a real conversation about his out-of-body experiences and uh, some of the things that he was struggling with. And I'd had enough spiritual experiences by then. I went home and wrote in my journal that night that I was finally grateful for some of the really difficult experiences I'd been through, been through because I knew how to help Jeff Olson and I knew the answers to his questions. Makes and so sense. my book, the large and large measure of my book is the first year of our friendship and the spiritual experiences we shared that year. Yeah, absolutely. So how did he, uh, when you said to him, I saw your wife, um, when you, how did he react when you told him your experiences of what you saw? Well, he maintained a, a, a steady countenance. Uh, I think he doubted a, a little bit initially, perhaps, but he later told me that he knew it was true when I told him how profoundly grateful she was to everybody that was providing care, because he said that was so much her that he had an he, he had a knowledge that yes, it was true, and she had been there. Okay, so he was out of his body and she was in her astral form, let's call it, in the emergency room watching his body being worked on while his, his consciousness was actually not in. Like, so he didn't see her standing there watching, did he? No. He, uh, before Jeff's body was even extricated from the mangled wreckage, he ra- rose up out of his body above the scene of the crash and had an encounter with his wife there. In right. central Utah. Okay. And she told him, you have to go back. You have to raise our seven-year-old son who survived with almost no injuries. And uh, he later, it's a little bit nebulous exactly the timeline of things, but a, a little bit later that evening, he was wandering around in the, co- in the corridors of the hospital, encountering people and experiencing them. And he understood their lives and their, their thoughts, their feelings. He, he experienced everything. Uh, as he passed them in the hallways and then he came to a body that was laying motionless on a gurney and he got no feeling at all from it and as he looked closer he realized it was his own body (laughs) and that he had to go back into it right but he wasn't witnessing his body being worked on in the trauma in the no uh -uh. right but she was but she was yeah and and when when we communicated silently psychically telepathically whatever word you use right Um, I understood who she was and who he was, although I'd never met either of them before. Mm -hmm. I knew that he'd live because she knew it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that he'd lose his leg and she knew it. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I knew there were things in his future because we knew these things together. There was this profound flow of common knowledge that you hear people describe in their NDEs where uh, the veil's drawn back and you're enabled to learn at a profound rate and uh, the volume of knowledge just communicated instantaneously is it's almost overwhelming. And I walked over and looked down at Jeff on the gurney and I checked the pulse in his foot and I knew he was going to lose his leg. And as I was looking down at him in the, on the gurney, I could still see her standing behind me in the air because I could see in all directions at the same time. Um, so that. it was a profound experience. Uh, and one that I, I love those experiences because when they happen, they reorder your, your whole life. They change. Everything is reprioritized. You view everybody equally and with a, with an abundance of love. There's no judgment. There's, you, you don't care about anything physical. Uh, you, you have an understanding of the eternity and the divinity of, of the spirit. And, and it's just a wonderful experience. Oh, I just, yeah, I just want to talk a bit about what you're, yeah, well, you've kind of described it there. You've answered my question before I've asked it. You're reading my mind, Jeff. Um, <laughs> um, it's kind of like you're in your body, but at the same time, you are in the presence as if you were out of your body. The, the mere fact that you said you could see 360, you could see everything like you can see behind you in front of you. It's like you're in your body, but you're seeing through your third eye, if you like, yes, or your spiritual right. eyes. So you're not seeing through your physical eyes. You're seeing through your third eye. So you have this broader perspective, this, this expanded view of the situation. What, what does it feel like for you when that's happening? It feels absolutely invigorating. It feels uh -huh. liberating. Uh, you, you, you don't want it to stop ever. Right. Um, and the reason I use the term near life experiences in my book, the subtitle of the book is near life experiences and lessons learned is because in my own experience and in the experience of those whom I've spoken with, when they have these near the veil experiences, they feel closer to life, more alive than at any other time in their existence. Uh, they don't feel dead. They don't feel nearly dead. They feel fully alive. And they're nearer that eternal life that, uh, that they want to uh, sustain into the future. Yeah. I had one experience yeah. where I was, uh, uh, I was in a, a rural a country area, and I saw myself... I, well, first, I, I was passing through this veil. I could literally feel it passing over me as I went through it. Mm -hmm. And as I'm experiencing this, at one moment, I'm all of a sudden standing a short distance away viewing it. And so, although this is impossible to describe in mortality, I was experiencing it and then viewing it uh, independently at the same time. And wow. as I passed through the veil, the only things I had on the other side of the veil as I walked through this lush grass in my bare feet was a pair of blue jeans and a belt and a button-down collar shirt. And I had this profound sense of I had nothing, I missed nothing, and I wanted nothing. And it was so incredibly liberating to not have any trappings of the world and not want them. Yeah. Absolutely. To be perfectly content with nothing. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It is a liberating feeling because I think that, oh, yeah, a lot of what tortures us is the wanting, the wanting, the wanting, the wanting, the stuff. You know, as much as the wanting puts us on a trajectory, you know, on a journey of receiving, um, whether that's wanting enlightenment or wanting a fast car or whatever it is that we're wanting. Yes, I've heard it described as the mania of acquiring things. <laughs> More yeah. stuff in a bigger, tough shed to store it in. <laughs> you did write in the book that you do like your fast cars, Jeff. <laughs> I do, uh, yes. That's an exception to the rule. <laughs> Everybody's entitled to a fast car and a nice watch. <laughs> okay. I have neither. Um, so Some did, things are better to want than to have. <laughs> but this is true. Uh, so do you still have these experiences? Are they still uh, a common occurrence in your life now or have they sort of become integrated with your everyday experience? Well, I was just talking with somebody today. I was having lunch with somebody today, a mentoring session. And I explained that, you know, people read my book and they think I'm spiritual, but they read the book of Exodus and they think Moses is spiritual too. And they forget that he was in the wilderness for 40 years, you know, and he often had years in between his spiritual experiences. But when you compress them all together, it makes it sound like, you know, you're walking around communing with spirits all the time. And, and that's the way, that's the way I am. I took a bunch of experiences and crammed them into one little book and it makes it seem like I'm really spiritual. But yes, I still do have experiences just a few weeks ago. Um, my brother came to me. Yeah. And uh, he showed me the day of his death from the, a different perspective. I'd always viewed it as an 11 year old boy. Right. And I'd, I'd experienced the anguish of my parents, um, but I didn't understand it. And just a few weeks ago, my brother came to me and he showed me the day of his death from the perspective of a parent because now I have five children. And for all these decades, I'd thought my biggest psychic wound was the death of my brother and my separation from him. And it, that was significant. That was profound. But I now realize too, that I think even my greater wound was seeing the helpless suffering of my parents and not being able to do anything to relieve it. Right. And he spoke to me and he said, go tell our parents not to be sad anymore because my parents are still alive. Yeah. And he said, tell them to be happy when they talk about me. I don't want them to be sad anymore. And then he took me by the hand and he led me through heaven and he gave me a life review and he explained things to me along the way. And then he showed me my life and he showed me where I'd had defining moments where I felt like I'd had some divine interventions. And he showed me that it was him that had interceded on those days and helped me. And I hadn't appreciated some of those experiences as coming from him. And that was just a few weeks ago. So yes, I still have experiences. Jeff, another book. I think there's another book there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm halfway through it. I, 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 it's about halfway written, but I took a break because I needed to do further research. And that research was, I've, uh, I'm just about finished reading the last 40 years of my journal. Right. Which has been a very interesting experience. That's a task. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay. So this is what I'm getting. What's your brother's name? Stan. Stan. Mm -hmm. um, he 
he and you hatched a plan from your broader perspective when you were doing your life plan that he would come into the body and hang out with you for a while and so you'd get to know him really well and then he'd drop the body and he'd be guiding you from spirit you might not know it but he'd always be there talking to you and guiding you and helping you and and it sounds like two weeks ago he's just kind of revealed that soul plan to you yeah he made it much more clear than uh -huh. i'd ever appreciated before um at the end of the book not yet the one you have uh, that you've been reading I'm, I'm literally writing the last two sentences of the book when I had this profound spiritual presence that was so strong and so persistent, it made me emotional. And I got to the point where I, I stopped and I asked, I said, who are you? And he said, I'm your brother. And having learned through the years, the next question that follows, I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, keep going. And when he said it, I thought he was talking about the book. But I was literally writing the last two sentences of the book at the time. And then a few weeks later, I have a stack of books in my suitcase and I'm getting ready to go uh, to my first speaking engagement. And I'm in the airport and this young couple comes and sits down next to me and starts the old, uh, where are you going and what are you doing conversation. And when right. I found out where I was going and what I was going to be speaking about, the young woman just lit up and she said, my grandfather just died and he's come to me a couple of times. And I said, did you ask him what he wants you to do? And she just knew it was the right question. She just knew. And she took a copy of my book and her and her husband got on their plane and I, I got on my plane to Boston. And mind you, I'd been an emergency physician for 25 years by then. And I estimated I'd seen in excess of 60,000 patients. And on the plane between Salt Lake and Boston, the spirit, the voice spoke to me and said, you will help more people with this book than you helped as a physician in the emergency department. Absolutely. And with that and the response I've had in emails and text messages and Facebook posts and conversations after speaking engagements, I think that's what Stan was talking about when he said, keep going. I think he meant keep writing, keep sharing, keep teaching. Uh, so that's, that's what I try to do. Keep going. I want to get you in front of a room of physicians. I want you to teach them how to tap into their own. Because can you imagine like the comfort that you gave Jeff during his, so he loses his wife, he loses his baby son, he loses his leg. Well, I didn't appreciate this at the time, but he later yeah. told me that one of the reasons he loved to talk to me was because he figured if he could share his experience with me and I didn't commit him to a psych ward, then he must be okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like I've got a book series and I obviously have a show and I counsel people. And one of the things that has struck me over the years, because I've been doing this for years, is people's fear of speaking about this stuff. Like I'm one of these rambunctious people. Yeah, sure, I was scared when I was younger, but, you know, I'd go to parties and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a spiritual healer. And they'd go, what's that? You know, like I wasn't scared to talk about it. And that's the thing that holds people back. They have these amazing experiences and and don't talk about it. They could be ET encounters. 50 years they've had it under their belt. They've had abductions. They've had out-of-body experiences. They've spoken to dead relatives or seen their spirit guides and they don't talk about it. And so, I, yeah. I was under the impression for a long time that I shouldn't talk about it because it was too sacred. Wow. And uh, what, what, what do you mean by that, too sacred? Too sacred. Um, that makes sense. Sometimes things seem to come that are just 
too, too special, too personal to divulge. But I also came to realize that most of my experiences weren't given to me just for me. Absolutely. They were given to me to help others. Absolutely. And they can't help others if I don't share them. Absolutely. You know, I had uh, a gorgeous man, Leo, uh, Dr. Leo, um, what's your last name? I've gone blank on the show not so long ago, who's a beautiful medical doctor in New York. And his um, son came to him after he died. His son died about 52 years ago, I think. And about 25 odd years ago, the spirit of his son came to him and profoundly taught him about life after death and who we are. And, and he wrote it all down in his book. And it took him 25 years to publish it because <laughs> I get that. I get that. <laughs> you know, my mentor, one of my mentors came to me just a few weeks ago. And he said, every experience is to enable you to help someone else. Yes. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. I said, I thought experiences were for personal growth. And then, you know, you could use that growth to go help others. And I don't know whether this applies to anybody else. I just know what was said to me. He said, no, no. He said, the primary reason for any experience is to enable you to help others. You get the secondary benefit of personal growth. Yes. Can we just repeat that? Can, I just want everyone to have this sink into their bones. Can you say that again? The primary purpose of any experience is to enable you to help others. And so in the process of receiving that instruction, I rebranded myself. I redid my website. I, I, I adopted, I wrote and adopted my personal mission statement, which is I exist to help souls heal. Yes. That's why I'm here. Yes, exactly. Well, if you look at the oneness principle, we can't experience anything without it affecting others. It's like as we heal, we actually heal our family lineage. As we forgive and get, like I talk, you know, I have a little tribe online, tribe and of New World teachers, and we talk about this all the time. As we overcome and we practice forgiveness and we forgive the abusive parents and the beatings and the abuse and, and um, we actually heal our family lineage both in front of us and behind us. You know, we carry the wounds to, as healers, to transmute them to overcome them because i think that from our soul's perspective we take it on we say yep give me some of that abuse give me some of that <laughs> you know hatred give it give it to me i'll go down there and learn to be a healer and then learn to overcome this, it yeah despite all of my experiences over the decades i up until recently found it difficult to love people the way i thought they deserved to be loved unreservedly unendingly unconditionally and that was a hard, that was a struggle for me. I had to work at it. And one day I was out on a run. I get a lot of downloads when I'm running. Yeah. And I, I, that day I either asked the right question or it was the right day or both. But I asked, why do I struggle so much to love? Right. And the voice that spoke to me that day said, so that you can understand those that struggle and help them. And my 40 years of frustration just evaporated just like that. It was gone. I, I understood and I was okay with it. I said, oh, I get it now. I'm all right with that. I had no resentment and my whole life changed. And I came home and I thought, okay, now I know why that was a struggle for me and I'm okay with it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, this speaks to when I was young, 
I don't know, about 16, 17, 18, can't remember, I was shacked up with my boyfriend, much to the um, judgment of all my Catholic girlfriend's parents that thought I was living in sin. And uh, <laughs> and I was thinking my parents had long gone, mum had died, dad had gone off and married another woman. And I was living with my boyfriend and I was the one living in sin, but all of them were out partying and having sex with whoever they wanted, but I was the one living in sin. <laughs> anyway, he was an actor. And every time we would have a fight, he would say, I can use this. I can use this. Like every experience we had together, yeah. he would it's say. like a comedian I... building his act. Yes, which used to frustrate <laughs> me. But now I understand it. You know, as a healer, everything I've experienced, every judgment pers a person has placed on me, every angry thought, every suffering, everything I've been through enables me to help others. It enables me to relate to others. It enables me to you know, find that empathy, that common ground. And often when I'm teaching, I'm sharing my experiences because people, you know, are, are directly relating to my experiences because they've experienced that. So, And I'm glad you mentioned empathy too, because that was one of the profound lessons I learned in a very challenging and difficult and long process. And I, I, I wrote on my Facebook page I, page, I think it was right around the turn of the new year, I wrote, uh, pain makes us all alike. Empathy makes us one. Right. Beautiful. Pain makes us all alike. Empathy makes us one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so the cool. pain. There's something the pain teaches us. And, and, and one of the things pain teaches us is how to be empathetic to other people that are in pain. Our circumstance may not be the same as theirs, but our feelings the feelings that craft our soul and make us who we are, are the same. So that's why we can't judge another person's circumstances because we don't know how they're feeling about it. But our pain can give us the same feelings that their pain can give them. And we have to not judge somebody else's circumstances because they're being crafted in the way that's right for them. Yeah. Well, I think you've embodied that unconditional love. I feel it profoundly from you. I was talking about you last night. I was going to a choir practice and, um, and I've got this gorgeous girl working with me on the book series. She's just starting up her own podcast show and she's like, who are you having on the show next? And I said, well, I'm having Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll on tomorrow. And I was just saying, such a beautiful man, such a beautiful man. Such a beautiful... I kept repeating it. I'm thinking, why am I thinking so? You're sort of emanating that unconditional love. <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it took me a long time to get there. So for people who want to emulate that, what would you say to them? What, what would you, uh, how can people embody more unconditional love? I have one little ex uh, exercise that I frequently give people when I'm mentoring them or when I'm doing a workshop. Uh, I, I frequently encounter people that feel they don't have spiritual experiences. They want one. They want to know what it's like. They want to know what it feels like. And this is the exercise I give them. Whatever you do to get spiritually centered, whatever brings you closer to your source, to the divine that you uh, connect with, whether it's prayer or meditation or, or going for a jog like me sometimes, whatever it is, ask this question. What can I do to serve someone else today? And I promise you, you will get a spiritual experience. It may be a thought. It may be a, uh, an image that flashes in your brain. Uh, it may be something as simple as picking up your phone and texting somebody and said, hey, I'm thinking of you today. Yeah. Um, and we tend to 
brush that off as intuition or or a, a human thought or some other thing, but it's not. It's spiritual. It's an answer to that question that you've asked. And if you act on it, the next day when you ask the question, it'll come easier and more powerfully. And the next day it will come better. And you grow into it. We tend to think that gifts, spiritual gifts, I know you, you, you used a different word. Abilities. Abilities. We tend to think that if they're spiritual in nature, they come whole cloth, complete, and ready to be exercised. Mm. But we don't have any trouble at all with somebody having a gift to play the piano, still having to exercise 40,000 hours of practice to become proficient. Absolutely. The same is true with spiritual things. We have to practice. We start yeah. with small and we work up. Oh, absolutely. Expanding our abilities. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ability. Just like, yeah, as you say, playing the piano, being psychic will be able to see into people's souls. Or, you know, I went to school right. to study it. Um, I just was fascinated by psychics when I was young. How do they do that? How do they do that? Never thinking that I could ever do it because I saw it was so strange and woo-woo and all that sort of stuff. So I went to study it only to find out that I'd been doing it all my life. This is, And I think that I'm not alone. I think we're all doing it all our lives. We just have to recognize it. And then when we recognize it, focus on it and expand it. Like keep, keep doing it. You know, those hunches that we get, those feelings. Like you said, you have a tingling feeling. Some yeah. people might say, oh, maybe it's the coffee I drank or something. <laughs> like, why am I tingling? You know, they're just writing it all off uh, and not realizing that they're being shown something about themselves and their abilities. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're still expanding your spiritual gifts, as you would call them, your psychic I'm abilities, to, I would call them. I've started recently doing some mentoring, one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Yeah, and it's been extremely fulfilling. It's been it's been so rewarding. Uh, almost every time, I, the people I meet with have some profound breakthrough in life that gives them some insight they've been searching for for decades, and, and it, it's really wonderful. And, and when I first started doing it, I didn't think I'd ever do it remotely. I thought I had to be in the room to get a feel for things, to to kind of discern what was going on and respond. And then somebody wanted to do it by phone and they didn't have resources to come to me. And so I agreed to do it by phone and it had a profound experience. And then I had a friend uh, 3,000 miles away who was going through some really tough stuff and we were texting back and forth. And as I'm texting her, it was given me what to say, things that would never have occurred to me to say. And I'm just typing them out on, on the screen because I was texting on my computer on the keyboard. So I was, and as I saw it come out on the page, I thought, I don't have to be in their presence. I have to just be in tune. Absolutely. Absolutely. Isn't it cool? It's so cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Leo Galland. I've just remembered Dr. Leo Galland. I'd love to connect you two. I'd love, I'd love to see you two have a conversation. Uh, yeah. Um, it was the f person that's uh, son, Christopher, came to him and uh, he, his book is called Already There. It's a really short book. Well, yours is quite short too. It's only about 100 pages or so. Yeah, um, I wanted it to not be intimidating to people. Yeah. I hate picking up a big, thick book with small print, and I go, ooh, that's too much, and I put it back down. And I didn't want people to do that with my book. I want it to be a quick, easy read. Yeah, but it, it, it's so true. When you set the intention to help someone, 
your mob, I call them my mob, you know, they kick in and they give you all that you need to say to that person. Like that's how I show up for sessions. I don't need to know anything about anyone because I've got the mob on hand that just show me and tell me all I need to know. And it's, and I think that you've been doing that for years already. I think they're just that you're becoming more aware of it really. You're, you're actually right. And I didn't realize it until I started looking at it in retrospect. And one of the most profound examples of it was Jeff Olson. Yeah. 20 plus years ago, I'd take him out to lunch and we'd have three or four hour lunches and we'd talk and I'd, he'd ask, he'd have questions and I'd share with him the answers and I'd walk him through it and I'd walk it through, walk him through it in his paradigm of his belief system. And I didn't realize what I was doing. And only now do I look back and think, Oh yeah, I was doing the same thing back then. I just didn't know it. Yeah. And now he's doing it. He's doing it as he reaches out and because just listen, watching him do his talk, it was just profound. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think, um, Oh yeah. One of the editors of the book that he was with, the near death ex the expand, you know, transformative experience of near death experiences, um, Penny Satori and, uh, the other beautiful English girl put out anyway, a friend of mine was editing that book and she was just saying, Oh my God, this man, he's so profound with his words, the way he communicates this stuff, you know, because it's all very well having the experiences, but how do we communicate those experiences? That's um, yes. And he's very handsome too. It's, it's quite intimidating <laughs> to, to share the stage with him. We do speaking engagements together and everybody's looking at him. <laughs> I tell you, just as handsome for people that can't see you that are listening on audio. He's just as handsome. <laughs> you have to reword that a little bit. You say you're just as handsome to the people who can't see you. <laughs> I know what you mean, but. Ah, uh... oh, dear. So, what would you? Uh, how long have we been talking? About an hour. So, what would you? like to share with people before we uh, finish. I still want to see you talking to doctors. I'm sorry, I've got this vision of you speaking to a whole room of surgeons talking about how, you know, how to um, embrace and expand these intuitive gifts. Because, you know, one of the stories in your book is um, I think you were walking past, no, it was a boy that fell off his bike. That's right. But he ha appeared to have no injuries. Right. And you were about to let him go because the protocol was, you know, he's figured blah, 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 blah. And you had this gut feeling and you explain it beautifully in the book. Do you want to go through that story? Yes. He had a relatively minor motorcycle crash. He was wearing full leathers and a helmet. A car stopped in front of him. He turned sideways, kind of laid his bike down and slid it across the road and bumped into the curb at low speed. No injuries to speak of. And uh, the, paramedics dutifully strapped him to a board and put him in a neck brace and brought him to the emergency department and he just wanted to get up and go home and there's a protocol to go through to see do they need a scan of their head do they need an x-ray of their neck and I went through that and he didn't meet any criteria that required any imaging of any any kind mm. and I was about to let him up off the board and send him home and something just spoke to my soul and said he needs a scan I don't know what it was or how it worked. What I'd like to think was it was some divine portion of him communicating with me, even beyond what he understood. Uh, and I sent him off for his CAT scan, joking with him about the imaging he didn't need. And uh, usually I just wait for the scan results to come back. But on this occasion, the radiologist called me and he had blood accumulating in his skull, displacing his brain so rapidly they could see the blood swirling. Mm. 
and he had what's called an epidural hematoma. And by the time he got back to the room, he was already getting a little bit groggy. And because I worked in a level one trauma center, all I had to do was place a call to the neurosurgeon. And 15 minutes later, he was upstairs in the OR getting a burr hole and having that blood drained. And two weeks later, he was probably back on his motorcycle. But yeah. if I'd have followed medical protocols, I would have sent him home and he almost certainly would have died that night. Right. Yeah. And I'd like to think that there's something more powerful than just medical knowledge that intervened that night and saved that young man's life. Yeah. You know, I think that this probably happens a lot in hospitals, definitely with nurses. I'm just a big fan of nurses and doctors, but I just, I just would love the conversation to expand around this, you know, that it's not about your intellectual prowess. It's about your intuitive prowess that might be saving lives. And uh, that story really speaks to that. Yeah. There, I, I had a number of experiences where uh, it's important to listen and it's important to listen to the patient too. I can tell you mm -hmm. one bone chilling experience is when you're taking care of a person with a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. And I've had this happen on more than one occasion. And the patient looks up at me and says, doctor, I, I think I'm dying. Mm. It just kind of freezes the room. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the, all the providers stop and look at each other. Because most of the time when a patient says that, they're right. Mm -hmm. They kind of look to the monitor to wait for them to go into cardiac arrest. Uh, fortunately, on, on this one occasion I'm thinking of, we packaged him up and sent him off to the cath lab to get a, a stent. And he did well. But on more than one occasion, when I've had a patient say that, they soon after that arrested and sometimes died. Yeah. You know, I had an experience when I was a young girl. I used to drive a little moped. I was studying as a naturopath and working in the catering industry as a, you know, as a waitress and cooking food for rich people. And I was coming home late one night down a one-way street and a car turned into the street the wrong way and smashed me up. And it really only, I swerved and it really only got my wrist, so smashed up my wrist. It was right outside our main hospital here in Sydney, like right outside, metres away. And the protocol was that they had to get an ambulance, which took at least half an hour. And right, I could have yes. walked there in two minutes. <laughs> and I sat on the side of the road with a smashed up arm because they had to get the ambulance to take me to. I was right outside the emergency. Anyway, it's funny. But the doctor, so I was in the public system. The doctor that did the operation, I think they just had me sitting in there for about 24 hours before they put me, came in to meet me. I didn't see him because they put me under and I had an operation. So a man walks into my room one day, doesn't look me in the eye, picks up the chart and looks at the chart and looks at my wrist. And I said, oh, hello, who are you? And doesn't answer me, doesn't look me in the eye. And I said, who are you? Who are you? And he just says, mm, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? And I said, I'm okay, but who, but who are you? And he walks out and the nurse came in and I said, who was that man? <laughs> he said, well, that's your surgeon. And, but he didn't look me in the eye. Like I was just, I'm some young girl. So I'm one of these rambunctious young girls. I said to the nurse, he's not allowed back in this room. I'm sorry. <laughs> like he's the head surgeon. You have to, you know, worship him and give him praise. And I said, I don't care who he is. If he can't look me in the eye and tell me his name, I don't want to see him again. And I caused this huge furor in the, hospital they were like difficult patient but he botched the surgery and so it needed to be done again and oh dear uh, yeah and uh, and so another young intern who'd never done it was a closed induction 
So he did, he did it again and he was brilliant. He was this young agent student and he did it and he was telling me how he wanted to be a carpenter, but he thought it would be more interesting to put bodies back together than to build. And I said, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. So I just, that, that bedside manner, you know, that he couldn't actually look me in the eye and tell me his name. I was appalled. It's, um, but he was worshipped as the head surgeon in the hospital. But yeah, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. And I made a big uh, fuss about it. <laughs> a lot of us of doctor, as doctors could do much better in this regard. <laughs> That's why I want you to speak to a room full of doctors. I think it would be so cool to see that. Anyway, I won't harp on about it. One day we'll get you doing that. Well, you asked me what, what, what I had to say at, uh, as we conclude. Uh, what message I have. Um, it goes back to that homeless person I took care of mm -hmm. um, when I was caring for him and I saw who he was and I saw the divine nature of him. Mm. And one of the reasons that's so important is because when we begin to realize the divine nature of others, we can begin to realize the divine nature of ourselves and then we can begin to treat each other appropriately. Exactly. I read in my journal over these last 40 years, and I'm always beating myself up. I didn't, I didn't get up on time. I ate too much. I didn't exercise enough, on and on and on. And, and in retrospect, I read my journal, and I think, Cal, Jeff, cut yourself some slack. Yeah. Give yourself a break. Take a breath. Live a little, you know? That, that would be my message. You're good inside. You're divine. Just cut yourself some slack and enjoy. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, what a beautiful message. Well, it's been just an honor and beautiful to speak with you today. And I look forward to lots more books and uh, I look forward to you seeing to talk to talk to people in hospital surgeons. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And uh, you set it up and I'll fly over to Sydney and we'll make it happen. Well, one day, definitely. I think that there's definitely an audience. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, I've got another friend who's just started a podcast. He's a doctor. I had him on the show years ago, Dr. Avi Rad, Rad, Rad. Oh, God, he's got an Indian name. I can't think of his last name. Rajanashna. Anyway, he's got. And um, he'd love to speak to you on his show, too, I'm sure. But uh, he was talking about, you know, the medical care and how he was working in a hospital in London and how dysfunctional it was. And then he came to Australia and he said he found the same thing in hospitals. Everyone's so busy and stressed that no one can. You know, no, no, nobody's, they're kind of running around with their heads half screwed on, really. And um, people's care is, uh, yeah, not good. But he, he had a chronic disease that medicine couldn't cure. And then he had an energy healing with somebody and he was completely oblivious wow. to any energy healing and didn't even know about it, let alone want to know about it. And I asked him a, an interesting question. Uh, this is about five years ago. I said, do you think that energy healers, uh, do you think that doctors are a bit worried about all the amount of energy healers that are out there? And he just laughed. And he said, oh, no. He said, you're not even a blip on their radar. <laughs> you know? so yeah. He just no, laughed. No, never give it any thought in, no. in the vast majority of them. Um, now, if the energy healers came in with some randomized, controlled, double-blinded studies uh, that showed energy healing worked, uh, then the medical profession would listen. Yeah. That's the challenge. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's what happened. But this is who you are today. You're an energy healer. 
I guess I am, aren't I? I, I, I I'm slowly coming to that realization. <laughs> but you know what? I don't find that it conflicts at all with my medical training. People ask me often, how do you reconcile your spiritual experiences with your medical training? And for me, I don't see any conflict. Yeah. Um, I can heal the, I can help the body heal physically with my medical training and I can use what I've learned spiritually to help, uh, help the spirit heal as well. And, and for me, there's no conflict. Yeah, absolutely. But you were working in, in trauma, like in accidents and stuff in hospitals, right? As opposed to Correct. prescribing drugs for diseases. So it's a kind of well, in the emergency department, in, at least in this country, you see everything that comes through the door. Mm. So you see the ill, the infected, the heart attacks, uh, mm. as well as all the trauma. And so, yeah, yeah, you prescribe a lot of medications. But you don't take care of people on a chronic, ongoing basis. You That's see them true. for one episode usually and refer them on to somebody else. Mm. All right. Well, I'll let you go. I can see that we need to go. Thank you again for being on the show. It's been so beautiful. Thank you. It's been wonderful. What a beautiful man, wasn't he? Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll. Yeah, we were just having a chat. I tell you what, I'll turn off the recording and we, he was telling me some more experiences that he had, but they are in the book. He's talking about an experience of going to a memorial and how all these millions of souls came to him and, and asked him and he said, who are you? And, he, and they, they said, we are many. And he said, well, what do you want? And he said, we want you to remember. So these souls who had died in, in wars and things, like not to forget, not to forget them. So I thought that was beautiful. I said, oh, we didn't have the recording on. He was telling me some more stories. But anyway, it's all in his book. And if you want to get the book and support the show, please do. You can go to my website. I'll have the link underneath the recording. Uh, to my page, I'll have the book there on the affiliate link. I'll have, he's got quite a few books. He's got six children's books and another book. And he's about to finish his, um, well, his next book. I won't, I don't know what number it is, but his next book. And I said, what do you think you'll call it? And he said, keep going, which was what Stan, his brother, said to him two weeks ago um, or recently when he was finishing the book. He thought that uh, his brother was talking to him from spirit was saying, keep going with the book, but he just finished the book. So he was like, what do you mean keep going? Let's keep going with this work, his new work, his work about speaking about spirituality and who we are as eternal beings and how we can communicate with that part of ourselves and that part of others and telepathy and psychic abilities and all that sort of stuff. So as his abilities kick in more, as the more he reaches out to help people and yeah, so it'll be interesting to catch up with him in another year or so and uh, maybe get him down to Australia to talk to doctors. I want him to talk to doctors to tell them that if they are experiencing things like this, they're not crazy and to expand in their abilities and nurses, people in the medical profession, helping people in emergency or in hospital. Yes, you know, I'm at a time of life now where my parents died years ago, but a lot of my friends and family are, have aged and infirm parents who are in hospitals and facilities and so we're in and out of hospitals visiting old parents that are transitioning in not a very pretty way, I have to say, you know. Lots of pain and suffering and struggle and fear about dying. My uh, sister-in-law's mother left the planet about ooh, coming up to two years ago now, two years ago this September. She was terrified of dying. Even though her husband had passed 18 years before her, she kept asking me, what's it like? What's it like? And I kept telling her and she never believed me. 
She knows now. She's there. But she didn't believe me. So there's a lot of that going on. Lots of older people who are transitioning and um, in fear. And I think that our job as healers and as difference makers and you all teachers, like I say you all are, is to help people understand and have less fear and anxiety around that because, you know, no one's getting out of here alive, as they say. <laughs> We're all going to transition one day and uh, return home. And it's interesting, the level of consciousness that we're at during that time of transition really speaks to what we experience next. So we speak to many people, as you know, on the show who talk about near-death experiences and life after life. And there is no one place we go to called heaven or hell. There are many different levels of experiences we can have when we drop the body. We have to also drop the mind. Some people don't. So the mind, those critical, fearful, angry, resentful thoughts, a lot of people drop their body but don't drop the thoughts. And so they're wandering around in their astral body still attached to their pain, their emotional pain. And when we help people overcome that emotional pain, whether it's just fear of dying or help people forgive, let go of resentment and love more, then when we do drop the body, we have the opportunity to return to that place where we come from, that place of pure positive energy, the place of light, and uh, re-emerge with our soul, family. Yeah, so it's important to help people on their passage back home. Thanks again for watching, and remember to get the book Awakened by Death. Lots of people had their awakening experience through the death experience. So if you have had someone that has left this planet, maybe as a child, maybe they came as a spirit guide to meet you in the flesh so that they could guide you from beyond. Yeah, and as Stan said to Jeff, you know, don't be sad. I'm still here, not dead, just not in a body. So uh, that's what my mum said to me. <laughs> when she left her body when I was a child. She kept telling me in my dreams, I'm not dead, you know. And I go, well, where the hell have you been? You're not dead. Anyway, she's been lots of places, an adventurous soul. And she's back. <laughs> Thanks again for watching. Remember to join the Inner Sanctum if you want more of these conversations in a little group, supportive group, and to meet some of the, the teachers and beautiful people I've had on the show. Oh, I might invite Jeff to come on the show later in the year into the Inner Sanctum. Love you all. Lots of love. Bye for now.